0: Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This recording is from a live webinar that was held on the 12th of June, 2020, with Bill Janeway, discussing his involvement in the creation of life technologies and his perspective on the VC biotech space.
1: So much, everyone for joining. This is the second webinar collaboration between the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club and the Cambridge University Venture Capital and Private Equity Society. I'm Sharsad. I'm Shreya Singhal. and we'll be your host this evening. We are so happy to have Bill Janeway for this event. So firstly, Q Talks by Tech um, is a leading podcast
0: series for tech founders and aspiring innovators. We've had some incredible guests so far, including Bill Janeway himself, um, as well as founders and other investors and experts. And this webinar is our second live event as part of QTalks.
1: The other society initiating this event is the Venture Capital and Private Equity Society at Cambridge University. We are a society which is passionate about educating students about the fascinating world of investing in private companies. This year launched a volunteer program called Due Diligence Projects where we use our discipline-relevant expertise to diligence early stage companies for Cambridge-based accelerator. In addition, we frequently host prominent funds such as Cambridge Innovation Capital, Octopus Ventures, and Start Codon for speaker events at Judge Business School. Please follow us on Facebook to learn how to get involved. That's at CUVCPE. Okay, and finally, we'd also like to say a big thank you to our
0: sponsor for this event, our Start Codon. Start Codon is a life sciences accelerator that invests in. And supports high potential healthcare startups. Their philosophy is that every company is unique. So they develop a bespoke six-month program of support. And for those bio nerds out there, their name start codon reflects this philosophy. Protein translation starts with the same start codon in the genetic sequence, and everything else downstream determines the protein's function. And so to the bit that you are all here for, our speaker for this event is Bill Janeway. Um, I will leave him to introduce himself, but just to highlight a few pertinent points about Bill. Um, He's a special limited partner of the PE giant Warburg Pincus, a teacher of the economics of innovation, and also co-founder and board member of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Over to you, Bill.
2: Thank you very much, Raya and Shelby. I'm delighted to be with you. This talk has the form of an old-fashioned church service. First, we start with a reading, and then that's followed by a sermon which draws out of the reading relevant lessons of general significance, significance particularly for those interested in launching a biomedical venture startup. But first, let me introduce myself quickly. I received my doctorate in economics from Cambridge in 1971. I then embarked on a 35-year sabbatical from the academy and from neoclassical economics, evolving from the role of investment banker, an agent representing companies, into the role of a venture capital principal. I began by joining a firm called F. Everstadt & Co. in New York, an independent investment bank providing fundamental research in the science-based industries. That was an honorable profession, as long as it was subsidized by brokerage commissions but in 1975 11 years before the big bang in the city of london the new york stock exchange monopoly over trading of securities was broken high fixed brokerage commissions were terminated and the ultimate fate for a firm like eberstadt was either commoditization or prostitution neither of which appeared to be compellingly attractive to us. So we necessarily sought to escape. And it's at that point that the reading begins. At Eberstadt, before fleeing from the alternative dooms to which the research business was fated, we attempted to escape by moving upstream, incrementally shifting our role from that of investment banking agent to venture capital principal. This shift in our center of gravity was not entirely voluntary. Not every one of the companies that we backed as investment bankers performed as they said they would. Given our commitment to our institutional clients, when a company performed badly, we had no choice but to intervene. As I said regularly to our investors, if we ever lose one of these, I will be in the emergency room with my thumb on the carotid artery covered in blood. In such circumstances, our challenge was to work our way out of the role of hired gun in order to sit on the venture capitalist side of the table. This was not an easy task, especially given that we had sold and our clients had bought common stock, ordinary shares, that carried neither preferential rights nor board representation. But in critical circumstances, our relationship with our institutional clients provided the necessary source of leverage. Before we came to establish our own modest venture capital funds, and beyond any commitments our clients made to them, they had deep pockets, far deeper than those of any venture capitalist or all of them in combination. In practice, these funds were accessible only with our active support and on terms we recommended, which endowed us with the ability to act as principal by proxy. So I learned the venture business by coming in the back door as a sort of cross between a police officer and a garbage collector. By far the most effective mentor I had in this career changing transition was a man called Fred Adler. While he was operating under the guise of a venture capitalist, Fred's excellence lay in his ability to take a business apart analytically, dissect the interaction of its functional operations and its financial cash flows. He was a notoriously difficult human being, treating CEOs as subordinates and subordinates as trash. I used to tell him that the greatest compliment he ever paid me was that he never offered me a job. But it was through two collaborations with Fred that I learned the substantive consequences of taking responsibility as a financier for the economic life of an operating business. The first of these collaborations concerned Bethesda Research Laboratories, BRL, a pioneering producer of enzymes and other biological products needed by all who were active in the nascent field of molecular biology and the technologies of genetic engineering. At Eberstadt, we become intrigued with biotechnology in the late 1970s. In 1977, Bob Swanson, the business co-founder of Genentech and a former Wall Street analyst, had called me to introduce his startup. After some serious exploration of the emergent science of molecular genetics and its potential to deliver to deliver clinically effective, commercially significant therapeutic and diagnostic products, we decided not to participate as financiers. Despite the government's growing support for research in the life sciences through the National Institutes of Health, the timeline from laboratory to clinic was certain to be so long, and the rate of attrition from candidate molecule to FDA approved drug was certain to be so high that investment returns were bound to be hugely speculative. No biotech startup could be expected to reach positive cash flow from operations during the lifetime of the venture funds that launched it. Investment success across the prospective new industry would be far more dependent on the varying state of the public equity markets for both primary financing and ultimate liquidity than on the scientific and operational success of the ventures. But we were attuned to the potential for a Levi-Strauss opportunity. Rather than backing any of the host of startups panning for gold, we wanted to find a business that delivered what all of the prospectors needed to do their work. This is what BRL did, offering a growing range of the molecular tools needed to to conduct genetic engineering. With the NIH as its anchor client, BRL was growing fast and had already attracted a major venture capital investor. Given our demonstrable understanding of the company's market and technology and a growing track record of success in bringing institutional equity investment to, the, to, to support the sort of company that BRL appeared to be, in 1981, Everstat was hired to execute a private placement that would carry the company through the estimated two years needed to reach the promised land of positive cash flow from operations. And this we did, selling some $20 million worth of common stock, that's more than $50 million in today's money, to our best institutional clients. In barely three months, we learned the truth of the adage, no business is so good that it cannot be destroyed by incompetent management. In January 1982, we discovered that the young entrepreneur and his scientific partner despite the presence of that major venture capital firm on the board had gone mad. The capital that was to fund BRL over the better part of two years had disappeared in a spending spree on people and equipment and facilities unconstrained by any business discipline at all. I recall hearing the news on a Friday. The initial shock expressed itself in preemptive regret for the loss of what had been a promising business Not BRL, but our own post-venture corporate finance business, and with it, of course, my own career as an entrepreneurial financier. Through the ensuing sleepless weekend, however, I worked my way through the pragmatic logic of the situation. BRL was indeed a promising business with more than $10 million of annual revenue, and it was growing rapidly in a rapidly growing market. In other words, it was worth saving. To save it, however, was going to take time and money money to buy the time needed to cut costs and stabilize operations. Our clients had ample additional resources from which to fund the turnaround, but we could not ask them for more cash unless we could do so in partnership with new leadership whom we and they could trust to use their money effectively. But of course we were hired agents with no seat on the board and our clients owned common stock with no defensive protections against just such circumstances. The order of action resolved itself into a conceptually simple sequence of events, each of which had to occur so that BRL and our business and my career could be saved. First, we had to secure the commitment of an experienced, credible, operational war leader who would join forces with us. Then, in partnership with this leader, we had to secure effective control of the company, subject to raising the needed new capital. In turn, we would bring our new leader with our an agreed turnaround plan to our investors as a trustworthy steward of the requisite incremental investment. Subsequent to the radical surgery, we would jointly recruit long-term successor, successor management. So on Monday morning, with the unanimous support of my partners, I called Fred Adler. Fred had substantial capital in his own venture funds, but I began by explaining that we had no need for his fund's cash. In fact, It was critically important that we clear the way for our investors to be the sole funders in the turnaround operation in order to maximize their operation to recoup the loss on their original investment. Rather, I told Fred, we wanted to hire him to plan and execute the turnaround. And to this end, I offered him 10% of BRL's equity if, as and when, we secured effective control and refinanced the business. Of course, at the time of the offer, It was not yet legally or practically possible for us to deliver on it. I subsequently learned that Fred's acceptance of our proposal generated intense conflict with his junior partners who understandably objected to the obvious conflict of interest with his own obligations to his firm and the fund he had raised. At the time, both issues proved to be blessedly irrelevant to his decision to join the project. The next step was for Fred and me to invite the principals of the incumbent venture firm to meet us in New York for what were proved to be a remarkably efficient confrontation with reality. It did not hinder the process that the junior partner directly responsible for the investment was in a state of shock and that the senior partner arrived drunk. Their choice was clear immediate and very public bankruptcy and loss of all of their investment. Or surrender of their protections against the substantial dilution that our investors' refinancing of BRL was bound to entail. They acquiesced completely. The following step was more melodramatic. We had to secure complete agreement to our plan by the two founders of BRL who still owned effective control of the company. My partner, John Hogan and I arrived at the company's building in Gaithersburg, Maryland next door to the NIH in the afternoon knowing that if we did not get a signed agreement by that evening to the terms of an emergency bridge loan which carried with it transfer of control, BRL would not be able to meet its payroll on the following day. Fred was in New York available to join us by phone at any time. The founders incompetence as business people was easily matched by their powers of denial and evasion. Fred's extensive repertoire of threats and promises was not prevailing until long after nightfall. A telephone message was delivered to the office where we were meeting. BRL's products physically existed inside inoculated eggs that were held in a special purpose rented warehouse. The owner of the warehouse now advised that if he were not paid his overdue rent by the next morning, he would literally pulled the plug on BRL's eggs, which meant pulling the plug on all of its inventory of products for sale, which meant pulling the plug on the company itself. This finally was the catalyst for capitulation. Within 24 hours, Fred had become chair of a newly created executive committee of the board. Within weeks, he directed a substantial restructuring of the business. My own transition from passive agent to active principal was confirmed as I too joined BRL's board when we brought five and a half million of new capital into the company. One year later, we led a strategic process to merge BRL with the Gibco Life Sciences Division of the Dexter Corporation. This merger created Life Technologies, a strongly profitable business with $100 million in revenue. Indeed, the Levi Strauss of the biotechnology industry now to the sermon does the specific instance of brl's rescue convey some more general lesson it does the conjunction of available surplus cash and our success with cred in leveraging access to that cash to wrest effective control of the company from its founders constituted a retrospective hedge against the adverse consequences of having incompetent managers and inattentive directors. But the success of contingencies, the succession of contingencies on which our improvised rescue mission depended was terrifyingly tenuous. How much more efficient, as well as less emotionally arduous, it would have been to hold effective control in the first place. So that if needed, the surplus cash could have been deployed without the necessity of the face-off with the venture capitalists and the late-night cliffhanger with the founders. Ever since BRL, I have known that cash and control represent the sole conjoint hedge against the radical uncertainty that comes with the opportunity to seek outsized returns from making illiquid investments. This is a more complex proposition than the cliche of the venture capitalist golden rule, whoever has the gold makes the rules, which addresses the straightforward bilateral game between the venture capitalist and the entrepreneur. Cash and control relates to the open-ended, multi-dimensional game. We are all doomed to play with the universe at large, addressing the infinite range of possible threats to continuity from outside the frontiers of the enterprise. Cash and control means unequivocal access to enough cash to buy the time to find out what's going on when something bad happens, and enough control to do something about it. It's the same imperative that has led every financial system that has survived to evolve a lender of last resort. For a startup venture, it means taking seriously Fred Adler's mantra. Corporate happiness is positive cash flow. He had these words embroidered on needlepoint pillows to throw out of CEOs. It, It means that you're paying your bills because your customers give you more cash than it takes to develop and deliver the product or service you are selling, rather than being dependent on the problematic availability of cash from external investors when you need it. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is that we were wrong about biotech. Fred Adler used to tell me that my greatest strength was the ability to admit error. At Everstat, we ducked direct investing in biotech, and it was substantially my error. Why were we wrong? It was not because we were wrong about the financial profile of biotech ventures. As specified in the reading, for a biotech venture positive cash flow is a distant dream at startup. And as Gary Pisano of the Harvard Business School wrote some years ago, the time to positive cash flow is beyond the life of the original investors, just as we assumed it would be. Yet venture capitalists have persistently committed billions of dollars to biotech ventures trailing trailing only information technology as a focus of investment. As you can see in looking at the percentages to healthcare and biotech versus ICT all the way from 1985 through to the present. In 2018, US venture capitalists invested some 30 billion dollars in biotech. Why? Because there has been almost continuous access to the IPO market for biotechnology ventures. In fact, during the 10 plus years since the global financial crisis, biotech, life sciences, biomedical ventures have accounted for more than 50% of all venture capital backed IPOs. And here is the data. You can see that pharma and biotech, 48 IPOs in 2018, is more than half of all the IPOs in the United States for venture-backed companies. So the next question is, why have public market investors persistently committed billions of dollars to companies with no revenues and substantial extended cash flow deficits? Gary Pisano's answer is drawn from the the representativeness heuristic from behavioral economics biotech investors are focused on the relatively small number of enormously successful survivors, Amgen being being a primary example. My answer is different. My answer is that market risk is more important to investors than technology risk. Biotech is the one sector where at the moment of conceiving of a venture, conditional only, only on the huge uncertainty, the huge technical uncertainty, but conditional only on that, at the moment of startup, you know what the market is and you can estimate the cash flows that will be generated and discount them at an appropriately high rate. You cannot do that in information technology. This is a lesson that is relevant across the entire spectrum of venture investing at the techno-scientific frontier. Knowing whose problem you are trying to solve is more important than succeeding at one of the possible ways of addressing that problem. Data from MIT's Venture Monitoring Service confirms this. Experts at MIT evaluate ventures that are submitted to the service and indicate whether they are interested in providing mentoring services to the young entrepreneurs. Their indication of interest is, quota, a subjective evaluation of the venture. 4.4%, only 4.4% of ventures gain an indication of interest. 54% of entrepreneurs pursue the venture, and 28% of total ventures achieve successful commercialization. So, how well do positive evaluations match success? Accuracy of the experts' evaluation in assessing technical risk, very high. Accuracy of experts' evaluation when market risk is salient, as in the consumer web service and software internet, zero. Now there's one more strategic lesson to be learned from the BRL saga. Let's return to the data on venture capital investing. Since 1980, biomedicine and information and communications technology has persistently accounted for 70 to 80% of all venture capital investments in the United States. These were the two sectors where the U.S. government invested hundreds of billions of dollars in the underlying science And in funding the translation of that science into potentially commercially relevant technology. This lesson can be generalized, and so it is in my book. There, I explore in historical detail the complementary roles of the mission driven state and financial speculation in financing investment, the process of experimental trial and error and error and error, experimentation at the frontier. I explored in that book, Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, and you can too. It's available on an Amazon website near you, and it has much to say about how I grew up at Cambridge, returned to Cambridge to translate what i had in a form that I hope is accessible and available to you. And with that, I think we have time to go to the questions.
1: Wow. Thank you so much for, for that insightful talk, Bill. Okay. In this segment, uh, we'll ask some questions that the audience have submitted in advance of the talk. Shreya? Um,
0: so the first one is, how do you expect COVID-19 and the accompanying recession impact the biotech
2: startup scene well first of all it's having an extraordinary accelerationist impact on certain aspects of biomedicine obviously that principally concerns vaccine development the pressure is on to break all precedent in bringing a vaccine into the clinic historically it's taken on average 10 years historically there are many infectious diseases for which no vaccine has ever been effectively developed and deployed. It's also accelerating investment in drugs to deal with the virus, uh, like the antiviral drugs that have successfully transformed the life of people living with HIV AIDS, one of those infectious diseases for which no vaccine has yet been developed. More broadly, It's focused, I think, again, on the unique characteristic of investing at the biomedicine genetics frontier, and that is, if you succeed in producing safe and effective solutions for identified challenges, whether they're as immediate as the pandemic or somewhat more general, uh, such as as a variety of cancer treatments that are well underway, uh, then the market risk is virtually zero. I think, if anything, if anything, this will increasingly shift the weighting of the scale towards biomedicine, particularly, particularly after we've witnessed over the last nine, ten months what's happened in the world of applied. Information technology using the internet as a medium for distribution uh, and delivery of services, where uh, those services seem to be fundamentally incapable of generating a business model that has any potential of ever, of ever realizing positive cash flow from operations. So compare the new biotech start. Compare a, a, a Moderna versus WeWork. The WeWork fiasco has clearly weighed down uh, investments where the uh, retail internet, if you like, has been pushed over and beyond in the context of zero to negative real interest rates, institutional money, looking for the next big thing, the FOMO, FANG phenomenon, fear of missing out on the next Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google. shifted it towards those where you understand the market and where a product that addresses that market effectively will clearly generate enormous revenues and cash flow.
1: Great, thanks for that, Phil. Another question, how can early stage UK startups attract the level of funding that their US counterparts are able to?
2: Well, first of all, the, the venture capital industry has really been going global. Uh, I mean, for example, I'm aware of a Cambridge-based startup in life science biotechnology. Uh, the, the seed angel investors were local to Cambridge. The first round, or the sort of seed round of professional investing, was led by a firm based in Berlin, but run by Americans, by expat Americans. The full A round has been led by one of the leading biotech venture capitalists in the United States, an enormously successful scientist and investor, and has been accompanied by two other American-based venture firms. So I don't think that any uh, Cambridge startup that gets through to where there's a kind of proof of concept that the technology being deployed is can work uh, and do that with what is available locally, locally from Cambridge Innovation Capital, from the from the university's entrepreneurship funds, but also from the Cambridge Angels, from uh, I, I know Jonathan Milner, whose uh, Milner Institute is the home uh, for some of the sponsors of, the, of this series. Um, there is money around, the original angel money around to get to the point where a venture can introduce itself to what is increasingly a global marketplace where just as with this conference the internet has so radically reduced the frictions in uh, in introduction and conversation that it's truly become a global market
0: great and um, on a somewhat related note um what are some of the resources that are essential to tap into um, to successfully start my life sciences venture?
2: Well, clearly, there is scientific expertise and vision uh, that is central to virtually every every life sciences startup. Um, That goes with some understanding of the clinical uh, environment, the clinical ecosystem, where the target, whether it's diagnostic or therapeutic, where the target products are going to be deployed. That means both, obviously, the demographics of the condition. It means the understanding, the funding, uh, the third party funding. And remember, this is what's critical to, to, to biomedicine is that the what we economists refer to as the elasticity of demand with respect to price. In other words, if the price goes up, how much does the demand drop? When the demand is funded and made effective by third parties who have agreed that the product is effective, whether as a diagnostic or as a therapeutic, the elasticity of demand is almost zero. It doesn't drop when the price goes up, the price may be regulated as it is in Britain. It may be in the United States, not regulated, but subject to political and public pressure when pushed to outrageous extremes, even by American standards. Um, But understanding that clinical environment, including the um, the financing, uh, specific financing uh, circumstances, which is different for every market, every geographical national market is important. And then finally, understanding the clinical trials trials process, even if initially the goal may well be and legitimately be that getting through phase one clinicals, understanding that your product doesn't kill anybody, uh, may be the point at which you declare victory and look to sell to one of the established uh, pharmaceutical companies that has all of the uh, uh, regulatory toxicology distribution capabilities, it is relatively very rare even in biomedicine for a company to become an Amgen and go all the way or a Gilead and go all the way to becoming a fully complete pharmaceutical business. But at startup, science, clinical understanding, regulatory and ecosystem understanding around the market that you're addressing.
1: Okay, fantastic. So now we're going um, to go live with questions asked during the webinar through Minty. So one of the top voted questions, Bill, is what sectors within life sciences are you looking at investing in now?
2: Well, first of all, in the life sciences, over recent years, I've evolved from uh, I've evolved from being an active investor to being I must say a trailing spouse. My wife is the geneticist. Uh, she was actually trained. Uh, she worked in Roger Peterson's stem cell lab, the first stem cell lab in Cambridge, and then in Mark Cotters newar lab. And she's on the board of Rockefeller University and the New York Genome Center. So I, the one thing I've discovered, and this is why I'm not an active angel investor. The one thing I've discovered is, the more you learn about genetics, the more you learn about genomics, the more you learn about the processes of translating into the clinic, what is demonstrated in the lab, the more you recognize that it's not that simple. Everything gets more complicated. I must say, I am enormously impressed with uh, the potential for, uh, the, with a caveat, the potential for personalized medicine, for mapping, for mapping therapeutics to the genetic profile. It's perfectly clear that what we used to think about clinical trials uh, is completely wrong. We used to get average data on clinical trial results and say well 23 percent responded with complete complete cure 56 percent some possible you know some therapeutic benefit and the balance it didn't really do any good well what we know is that for a hundred percent of people with this particular genetic profile it worked perfectly and for twenty percent with a rat it with a different profile, it didn't work at all. And it mixed in between. So that, that is absolutely fascinating. And frankly, as an economist, understanding that it's not just the mean, it's the higher moments of the distribution that really, really matter. And that being able to partition the population in a clinically useful way, I think that is fascinating. It opens the door to an enormous, an enormous uh, scientific and therapeutic opportunity, but also an enormous social challenge because the distribution of who gets access to that personalized medicine is going to be a social choice. Right now, between the UK and the US, it's hard to imagine a more radically different social response. Uh, than what we have in the US where medical treatment, uh, best in the world for those who can afford the best in the world, and virtually non-existent for a substantial minority of the population.
0: Great, okay, so our next top two questions are quite related, so um, we'll ask them together. Um, so can you discuss the KPIs or the most important things that investors look at and that they want to see um, when they're assessing early stage life science startups.
2: First, uh, first, I think two parallel processes. One is proving the science, proving the replicability of the science. This is why the you know the revolution in repl- repl- replicability across all of science is so important. But first is have what you observed, uh, is, is it a, an accident? Is it, or is it genuinely replicable? And then is there a path towards scaling it up? That's on the, on the technical side. The second is indeed that understanding of whether you call it a target market or a set of clinical needs, understanding that in depth and then thinking through the process of how you go from here to there. And that gets to what to me is one of the most important steps in reading a business plan. When I read a business plan, whatever the underlying technology, I always begin first by reading the biographies of the founders. It's a team you're investing in. Second, reading their analysis of the market. Why is this interesting uh, and and attractive? Why is there a need and how intense is that need and how big is the need? And then going to understand why the proposed solution has, in this case, a scientific basis, a clinically potentially demonstrable scientific basis for solving that problem.
1: Okay, so the next question. um, Bill, in a previous interview with Rob Johnson from INET, you mentioned briefly that there was a VC bubble in 2015 to 2017. Could you briefly elaborate on this? Was it only SAAS or did this include the biotech bubble as well?
2: Well, I, I really separate the two out, but there's a general condition and then there are specifics. The general condition is the intersection of the maturation of the internet with a radical reduction in friction I've already referred to, with the persistence of virtually zero to negative real risk-free rates of interest, the pressure on institutional investors oriented not to venture investing, but to public market investing, where they have liquidity, they can change their minds, where they have effectively no Role in governance or control of the company, their migration uh, over what began in 2015 to 17, but then has continued right through 20, through most of 2019, their general movement into late-stage venture and the creation and persistence of the unicorn phenomenon, companies financing infinite, not not quantifiable cash flow deficits, but like we work, cash flow deficits, reaching out to the crack of doom and to the heat death of the universe, funding them with capital from institutional investors with no understanding or knowledge of the operational dynamics of startups, no experience of dealing with entrepreneurs, and paying premium prices for shares which they could not resell without liquidity. That's the the venture bubble. I think that it has been most heavily concentrated in the consumer internet. I think that the, uh, the digital services, clearly it's gone, it's disappeared where digital services feed over into delivering real world, in real life services as whether it's, it's um, co-working or scooters or food delivery. Um, I think there's a real reckoning there. The goal now is to try to, uh, before competition policy comes in, to merge the losers together in the hope that um, three losers becomes one possible winner. That's never been my experience, by the way. Um, But in the biotech world, yes, investment values rose, and institutional money became more available but that's where the ipo market has stayed open and the ipo market has been the in a way the access to the ipo market has been the damper for the kind of craziness that's gone on in that segment of the venture world where there have been very few ipos where many of the ipos that actually happened like uber and lyft were the high point of the valuation of the companies whose shares are now selling at. 30, 40, 50% lower, uh, lower than the prices at which institutional investors invested privately before they went public. That's the bubble that I think has been deflating. Whereas I think venture and institutional support for biotech companies, private and then public, continues strong and will continue
0: strong. Great, thank you. Um, We've had quite a few questions. Uh, related to careers, there's a few on the topic of getting into venture capital. Um, so, some people are asking what's the best way to get into the industry? Um, it's quite difficult to find vacancies on websites. So, how do you recommend people find opportunities um, in venture capital if they're interested?
2: Well, first of all, this is a Cambridge audience, and Cambridge is one of the places where firms, the larger firms who do uh, recruiting on campus, uh, this is one of the places where they, where they do it. That's, that's the first. So there is a kind of institutional adva- advantage of having gotten into Cambridge and done well at Cambridge. The second is that there there are multiple paths, but in the life science, biomedicine area, there's no question that immersion, being a native participant in the scientific, and technological ecosystem world is really important. Trying to come in from the outside and learn it on the fly, which is what I did in the late 1970s, early 1980s. I did have partners who were who were native to it, who had PhDs in the relevant uh, life sciences at the time. Um, so I think that there's a second advantage for those who have been really um, committed themselves to uh, reaching a degree of expertise that is demonstrable. Uh, Third, a number of people I know who have become active venture capital investors in the life sciences sector have gotten to a venture firm in one of two, maybe three different ways, two ways principally. One is, by way of a consulting business, by way of one of the many professional consulting businesses uh, that provide advisory services to venture capital firms. The second, and this may sound a little um, <laughs> not too attractive, is by way of investment banking. The, given the persistent uh, 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 flow of initial public offering, Given the merger and acquisition activity in the sector, the major and some more specialized investment banking firms have teams of professionals who serve the industry, and that means serve the investors in the industry. Working for one of those firms is the way that you can get known by one of the venture investors in a firm to whom you're providing services. So even while it can be challenging to get that interview with the venture capital firm itself from uh, the time you get your your degree, your your doctorate, or even your MPhil at Cambridge, uh, there are alternative paths to establishing your expertise in the eyes of those for whom and with whom you want to work.
1: That's great. So, another question, Bill. um, You've touched on if having a doctoral degree is relevant. um, How can we ensure proper systems are in place to prevent biotech companies starting out with too ambitious of goals and not ending up um, returning money to investors?
2: Well, My first law of venture capital, I have to confess, is, quote, all entrepreneurs lie. And the ones who don't know they're lying are the ones who really get you in trouble. I am speaking, of course, 40 years after I first uh, stated this law about Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos. Uh, There will always be entrepreneurs who, as Fred Adler used to say, drink their own bathwater and think it tastes like champagne. The the way, BRL, the history, the soap opera of Bethesda Research Laboratories uh, illustrates the way, the way to keep track. And this is by way of those who are also working for the entrepreneur and those who are funding the entrepreneur. And that is follow the cash. Now, a biotech startup is going to generate negative cash flow it is going to invest money and do so over a period of years. But for every period, every month, every quarter, every year, there should be a budget. A budget whose translation into cash in, cash out is more important than whatever the accountants say are generally approved accounting principles and correspond to a profit and loss statement. What matters is the cash flow and what matters is when the cash flow does not match what was predicted, forecast, and committed to by the entrepreneurial management. That's how to constrain the understandable hyperpolic, hyperbolic, hyperbolic uh, uh, assertions of an entrepreneurial leader who is almost bound to overstate the. Um, Uh, overstate the likelihood of success and the magnitude of success. I used to say that, you know, if they get the contract, if the trial works, you're going to get a phone call at four o'clock in the morning saying, hooray, we won. You have to make the call to find out why the cash is $10 less than it was supposed to be at the end of the quarter. Where did it go? What did it buy? Where are we now?
0: Given today's audience is spread across the world, do you have a view on whether the US is still a place to be, still be place to be for Life Science VC? Or do you expect a shift in capital to markets such as Europe, Asia, or other emerging markets?
2: That's a very, very good question. This is obviously an extraordinarily stressed time in the history of the American Republic uh, and in our own version of capitalist democracy uh, and the problematic intersection of political processes and market processes. Um, It is the case that over the last five to ten years, national government funding of fundamental scientific research has stagnated and in some critical areas declined That's particularly true in everything to do with climate change, which is a radical radical uh, loss of American participation, let alone leadership. Um, It does remain relatively strong in the life sciences. There is now a a movement afoot in Congress. Uh, We'll see whether it, it, it can come to fruition before the election. I'll come back to the election. Uh, to, to substantially increase NIH national institutes of health funding partially as a kind of political almost uh, reflex re- reaction to the pandemic and to a public health crisis for which the US was not uniquely unprepared but was perhaps sharing with its Anglo-American brethren uh, a degree of unpreparedness that was clearly very unfortunate. Um, I am impressed across Europe, and particularly on the continent of Europe, by the mobilization of research resources and the growth in both uh, entrepreneurial uh, talent and professional venture backing of entrepreneurial talent. This has emerged, really, I think it's fair to say, since the global financial crisis. Um, European Research Council, the Horizon 2020 programs, enormously impressive and for those who um, would decry the the bureaucrats of brussels let's have more of them generating horizon 2020 or horizon 2025 programs of support for fundamental science and the translation into applicable technology so I'm, i i think that um, there are well elsewhere of course of course we should expect to see uh, China uh, as a major participant and player at the frontier across all of science and technology, uh, including the life sciences. Um, one of the more one of the more problematic acts of uh, the current administration in Washington was to cut off the collaboration, the research collaboration, between American scientists and Chinese scientists focused on the translation of diseases from bats to human beings. How short-sighted is that? There are other areas where it's it's proven to be quite frustrating. I happen to know a bit about uh, Singapore's enormous commitment to trying not only to sponsor scientific research, but to nurture an entrepreneurial startup community which has not proven to be very successful but it's a one city it's not a nation um, and uh, what goes with you know enormous uh, discipline and rigor in the classroom does not necessarily go with imaginative, creative uh, breakthrough, disruptive scientific uh, invention and discovery. Um, but I certainly am as I say I'm most impressed by what's been going on across Europe. And I do, I do. Um, no matter what happens on January 1st, I do include the UK in that. Uh, and obviously, I'm aware, as I mentioned, of a good deal of what's going on around Cambridge. And so much of the Cambridge phenomenon has been in the life sciences and continues to be that it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a very, very rich uh, uh, soil in which to uh, plant yourself as uh uh, as an entrepreneur uh as an entrepreneurial scientist
1: that's great though um for those that are new to uh the private equity venture capital industry who would you suggest they follow um what thought leaders do you follow
2: that's a good question i'm i have to confess that i'm more Focused on the world of information technology, of applied information technology, there I would say that to me the number one guru is my great friend Tim O'Reilly of O'Reilly Media. Uh, you can find him and his writings all over the place, um, and there are there there are a number of people uh, here. Um, Azim Azhar of uh, Exponential View is extraordinarily insightful, and uh, kind of aggregator of thoughtful new stuff. Um, Across the life sciences, um, my wife tells me that you should subscribe to STAT. And through STAT, through the STAT newsletter, you will wake up in the morning with so much uh, to absorb and to follow that you don't need much else. You'll find your own path through this uh, hugely complex, rich universe that's continuing to evolve. (laughs)
0: Fantastic. Um, so there's an attendee who's building a Cambridge, um, Cambridge-based regenerative medicine company um, and launching it in Japan or, and Tokyo. Um, and you mentioned that Singapore is not successful necessarily for venture companies. Um, and so what do you think about uh, Japan's prospects and potentially uh, specifically for the area of regenerative medicine?
2: Japan has been to me, something of a mystery. Following World War II and the catastrophic uh, impact of World War II on Japan, there was a generation of extraordinary entrepreneurs. And you know the names of the companies they founded, Sony, Panasonic. I mean, these are brand name global companies. But back in the 1980s, Japan loomed like the like the the threat, the specter of China has loomed in the last 10 years. It was going to be, there was a book published called Japan is Number One. And it appeared that the Japanese industry, a little bit like what's been happening in the US in some sectors, um, had matured to a point of valuing stability uh, over innovation. So in the world of computing, Japan dropped out, just dropped out uh, from the end of the 80s. That's another, that's an unrelated long story. Um, And it's a bit of a commentary to say that that the only Japanese-based venture investment firm that I think anybody's ever heard of, Is the most problematic and controversial one in the entire world. It's called SoftBank. Um, So I think there, I mean, clearly there is great science in Japan, great medical science. Uh, Clearly there is a a funding system for healthcare, uh, an environment in which, I mean, Japan has had perhaps the most successful of major companies, uh, countries with, you know, more than 50 million population. The most, the most successful experience of the pandemic of any country in the world. Um, but it hasn't been an environment, a supportive environment for entrepreneurial startup companies over the last generation. That, I, as I say, I don't want to over expertise myself. There may be niches in the biomedical world where the first class science in Japan has translated itself into new companies. Um, My sense is that while there are major Japanese pharmaceutical companies like Takeda, uh, that it hasn't generated the kind of wave of of new significant uh, medical companies such as has emerged in the US over the last generation.
1: That's great. Another question from the audience. What is the main difference you see between the life science and bioscience industries, or do you see them as the same thing? Ah, okay. I've
2: been speaking of them broadly as pretty much the same thing. Obviously, there are segments, there is the pharmaceutical sector where the clinical trials regulatory process is by far the most um, uh, arduous. Uh, as it should be, Um, and where the cost of going from lab concept of a target molecule to clinical distribution of an approved pharmaceutical is measured. The cost of that is measured in billions of dollars today, billions of pounds. Uh, From there, through diagnostics, through medical devices, I actually had a lot of experience in the medical device sector from uh, things like um, uh, cardiac devices to the radical revolution constructed by, uh, from computer-based diagnostic imaging systems, which I was deeply involved in uh, 30, 30, 35 years ago. Um, uh, that is a sector where, uh, on the one hand, it's become enormously concentrated. Um, medical devices is where uh, the default option for a startup, almost like in the computer world today, the default option has to be when do we hold the auction? And it better be sooner rather than later uh, because the big guys have so much power and uh, the com- competition policy has been almost entirely missing in action. That may change, but for the time being, it has. That's also where patents are critically important as they are in the pharmaceutical sector. There's a huge array of service businesses, uh, more or less regulated, uh, in many places substantially less regulated than they should be, Um, and that varies by nation. Those have much lower uh, barriers to entry, Um, but uh, finding services, I mean, I will tell you uh, here in New York, uh, my COVID-19 testing has been courtesy of CityMD. A venture-backed uh, for-profit service business that is, needless to say, having an enormous surge in demand. It uh, may well be on its way to going public, for all I know. Um, so I, th- you're clearly right. There's an enormous spread. I've been principally focused on the science-based, um, molecular, genetic, genomic, clinically oriented uh, sector segment. Uh, of of the biomedical universe.
0: Fantastic. It's great to see so many people still on this call. You clearly have your words of wisdom, a very valuable, Bill. Um, I think uh, we'll do two more questions, if that's okay with you. So another question that's come through is, um, is is VC biotech investing dying, in your opinion? Um, In recent years, we've seen investors are directly investing in companies rather than placing their capital in traditional PEVC firms? Um, what's your perspective on this?
2: Uh, corporate investing. That's a very, very good question. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's, it's been true quite a, right across the board. There's been a big movement towards corporate investing in, as, as venture capitalists. Um, it's problematic. Uh, for the startup. I'd look at it from the perspective of the startup and from the original funders of the startup. The challenge is twofold. On the one hand, accepting investment from a corporate investor has the potential to limit your options going forward. Inevitably, if the founders, both the entrepreneurs and the venture investors, agree that it's time to declare victory, let's hold an auction. If there is a corporate investor already in, it is all too likely to chill the interests of others who would assume, usually correctly, that the corporate investor has inside information, has a preferred position, even if it doesn't formally have a right of last look or a right, let alone a right of first refusal. Uh, So that's one factor. The second is that corporate investors have multiple motives. In a way, that the good thing about venture investors is that they are monomaniacal. They're there to make money. The corporate investor may be there on the one hand to have a window on an interesting area of technology that's opening up. On the other hand, it may deliberately, more or less explicitly be the front end of an acquisition program. On the third hand, it may be a way of keeping on board in the company some of the smartest people who want to be allowed to play this game. Um, But on the other hand, on the fourth hand, most corporations have a really hard time creating a compensation system for their venture capital subsidiary that's competitive with the independent venture capital firms. It's it's a little challenging. I could tell you some stories about that, but those mixed motives can mean that having a corporate, it sounds so great, you know, they're they are endorsing our technology. They're, uh, perhaps we're going to establish a commercial partnership with them, but it does come with some curses and you should be aware of that up front.
1: Okay, so for the last question, Bill, Um, regarding company restructuring. How do you restructure a company according to the investor's will without losing the essential human resources that have been crucial in the development of the company?
2: Well, it's absolutely an excellent question. It's an excellent question. In the case of BRL, I have to tell you, um, and this has been my experience in numerous cases, where the failure in leadership has been so complete and obvious as it was at BRL. By the time the investors intervene or the new investor intervenes, uh, the talent, the really talented people in the company, when you meet them say, what took you so long? Where were you? We knew this was out of control and going to make a large hole in the ground. So that's, that's one possible answer the second is usually ventures are led by a team not by one individual and it can be that the failure can be ascribed to one person who was over his head she was underwater and there's a working team there and the third aspect of it this is the venture capitalists who really succeed succeed in good part because they establish intimate relationships of trust and collaboration with people who know how to build businesses. As I say, Fred, my my partner at BRL, Fred Adler, was really more a company doctor than a great investor. Um, And with Fred, we recruited on the one hand a first-class CEO for what became Life Technologies. We also recruited one of the greatest uh, scientific advisory boards of any company of its type uh, in the in the 1980s. Uh, multiple Nobel Prize winners who were actively engaged with the science of the company. So we didn't just bring the money needed, we brought the team to lead and support the successful turnaround. So if you're choosing your venture capitalist, one fundamental due diligence for the entrepreneur is to understand the depth and breadth and to interview participants in the operating network that that investor can deploy when needed uh, in support of their portfolio companies.
0: Okay, fantastic. Um, I think I speak for everybody who's listening to this webinar when I say thank you very much, Bill, for sharing your insights so openly and being able to answer everybody's very varied questions Um, and so yeah I just want to say a big thank you to Bill for being our speaker for today.
2: Thank you all very much it's been a wonderful experience for me as well.